Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 122 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks, as always, for joining us. If you have listened to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast for a while, you know that I like to sneak in the occasional Bruce Springsteen episode every now and then. Some of you may remember our interview last year in episode 106 on the rise of Springsteen studies with historian Jonathan Cohen. Well. I like to call our guest today, Jim Cullen, the Dean of Springsteen Studies. In his 1997 book, Born in the USA, Springsteen and the American Tradition, Cullen brought Springsteen's career, music, and message into conversation with the wider contours of American culture that he learned as a product of Brown University's American Studies Department where he earned his PhD. It was really the first book of its kind, and really, I think, a springboard to this whole Springsteen studies phenomenon that we've been seeing of late. Over the years, I have benefited greatly from Jim Cullen's work on the history of television. He's written a book about all in the family, popular music, historical memory. In fact, I have used his book on the memory of the Civil War in American culture in a Civil War class that I taught. And I've also used his book on the American dream in a class. His recent book, which we'll be talking about today, is Bridge and Tunnel Boys. Cullen brings Springsteen into conversation with his contemporary and fellow New York metropolitan artist, Billy Joel, in this book. The subtitle is Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and the Metropolitan Sound of the American Century. Here's a taste from the book's dust jacket. Quote, Born four months apart, Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel both released their debut albums in the early 1970s, quickly becoming two of the most successful rock stars of their generation. While their critical receptions have been different, surprising parallels emerge when we look at the arcs of their career and the musical influences that have inspired them. Locating their music in the longer tradition of the New York Metropolitan Sound, dating back to the early 1900s, Cullen explores how each musician drew from the city's diverse racial and ethnic influences. Despite frequently releasing songs that questioned the American dream, Springsteen and Joel were able to appeal to wide audiences during both the national uncertainty of the 1970s and the triumphalism of the Reagan era. So stay tuned. Jim Cullen will be with us in a moment. First, as always, let's take care of some business.
The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep all of this going by your generous financial donations. So if you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, that, by the way, includes this podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, our blog, The Arena, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics now in hiatus, then head over to currentpub.com and click the red membership button. You could also go over to currentpub.com and click the subscribe button, and that will give you a daily or weekly newsletter of everything that we publish over at Current. Of course, the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on X or Twitter at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. You can follow me at Twitter slash X at John Fia one or you can follow Current at Twitter at Current underscore Pub One. We are also on Facebook. Look for us as Current Magazine. We are on Instagram. And we are now even on threads, currentpub.com. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews go a long way in helping us build and sustain our audience. Jim Cullen teaches in the Interdisciplinary English Ethics History Humanities Program at Greenwich County Day School in Greenwich, Connecticut. And before that, he taught history for nearly 20 years at Ethical Culture Fieldston School in New York City. His first book, The Civil War in Popular Culture, was published by the Smithsonian Institution Press in 1995. Since then, he has published 17 more and edited two anthologies, which include Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen and the American Tradition, published in 1997 with Harper Collins, The American Dream, a short history of an idea that shaped the nation, published with Oxford University Press in 2003, Sensing the Past, Hollywood Stars and Historical Visions, also published with Oxford in 2013, and the Kindle single, President Hanks, published in 2011. Jim Collins' textbook, Democratic Empire, The United States Since 1945, was published by Wiley in 2016. And in 2020 to 2021, he was especially productive. He published three projects with Rutgers University Press. First, Those Were the Days, Why All in the Family Still Matters, followed by From Memory to History, Television Versions of the 20th Century, and then Martin Scorsese and the American Dream. His most recent book, prior to this one on Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, is The Best Class You Never Had. It's a history of the United States rendered in the form of a classroom discussion. Jim's articles and reviews have appeared in the Washington Post, the USA Today, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Rolling Stone, and the American Historical Review, among others. And today we are talking to him about his most recent book, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and the Metropolitan Sound of the American Century, published in 2023 with Rutgers. Our guest today on the podcast is Jim Cullen. He is the author of Brand new book, just out with Rutgers University Press, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and the Metropolitan Sound of the American Century. Jim, I've been looking forward to having a chat with you about things like this for a long time. Welcome to the program. Really glad to be here talking with you, John. 
So let's begin for our audience. You know, I was joking at the beginning of the episode that I kind of sneak in a Springsteen episode every now and then. It's an American history podcast. But tell me about your journey. You know, I mean, you write about popular culture, you write about music, you write about the American dream. What drives you as a writer and a scholar? Well, I guess, like a lot of historians, uh, trying to make sense of my own experience, you know, and um, you can define that very narrowly and, and you know, in terms of one's immediate circumstances or, or in my case, especially in the early going more broadly, like you, I believe, and, and like a lot of your listeners, a first generation college student, you know, experienced a modicum of upward mobility in my life and uh, have tried to, you know, understand that and see it as part of a a larger trajectory in, in American history, and also that um, to the countercurrents or the complications that, that arise from that. Now, one of the things that I've always wanted to ask you, you know, I've been following your work for years. How do you do it? You are a high school teacher. Now, again, I know you've taught at independent schools, which maybe gives you a little freedom. I don't know. But um but how do you write so much and still, you know, the weight of your work as a, a teacher, you know, as a as a committed kind of humanities history teacher, you know, how did I have a hard time enough? I'm on sabbatical this semester and I'm just trying to finish one book. I'm imagining a, a heavy teaching load. How does that work? Well, I'm not sure I have a too satisfying answer for you. I mean, I, I describe it as kind of an itch I have to scratch. Teaching is important to me, and I guess I'll use a musical analogy here. You know, like, you know, people like Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen. I mean, they're they're writers, but they're also performers. I think of teaching as a kind of performing would never give it up willingly, you know, no matter how successful I was ever to become. And I do think that there is some symbiosis there. And yeah, I think being an independent school does help. And and I've been doing this long enough where I think I'm I've got a pretty high degree of efficiency. I don't have to spend a lot of time with the work of teaching other than other than grading in terms of the curriculum development and things like that. And and I've got a pretty good catalog at this point. So it makes it easy to throw things together. And the last thing I'll say is I've been doing more collaborative teaching in recent years. You know, team teaching, I think, can be a very fraught thing. And I think that a lot of teachers, a lot of professors are nervous about it, understandably so. But when it works, it's wonderful. And that's really been a highlight of my of my recent work as a teacher. When do you write? Do you write during the school year? Is it all summers at night? Um, yeah, it's it's a nights and weekends thing, you know, uh, for me for the most part. And yeah, summer is usually a big slab of time to get to get stuff done. But you know, I will. I mean, even on a day like today, I had you know I had an hour or so, and you know, I can be, actually I happen to be working on a book about New Jersey at the moment, and I uh, squeezing in a you know page of stuff about Walt Whitman's life in New Jersey because we think of him as a New Yorker, understandably, but he spent a good chunk of his life in Camden actually, and so that's yeah. what. I'm, that's impressive. I cannot write in the middle of an academic day, but uh, that's good. Let's get into the book. So Bridge and Tunnel Boys. Now you're from, I think I remember your bio, you were born in Queens. You grew up in the New York metropolitan area, right? Probably spent most of your life there, all of your life there. You know, I grew up, my listeners know, I grew up in, in New Jersey. I now live in the frontier of central Pennsylvania. You know, Bridge and Tunnel is, you know, part of the vernacular. But we have we have people who listen to this podcast from all over the place. Bridge and tunnel, boy or girl, whatever, might not be a common phrase there. Talk about this idea of bridge and tunnel boys in terms of Joel and Springsteen. And then also define what you mean by this other part of your subtitle, the metropolitan sound. Because you're making an argument that there is a New York metropolitan kind of sound in American music and in, in the so-called American century. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll sort of start by saying, and I don't talk too much about this in the book, but it is something I've been sort of working on, which is that there's a strange paradox about greater New York, which is that, you know, over the course of the, from, you know, the 19th and 20th century, it, it turned into this sort of global megalopolis and sort of international capital. But because of its origins, because of its Anglo-Dutch origins, which have a very strong sort of libertarian element to it, you know, decentralization has is a very big part of the sort of the cultural DNA. And so there is a sense in which sprawl was sort of built into New York in a way that is not necessarily true of 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 other cities or other other and other parts of the world. 
So that's sort of one piece of this. Another piece of this, you know, reflects, of course, the geography, which is that New York is, in fact, New York City is, in fact, an archipelago, a collection of islands. Um, and so in order for it to function, it, it does need, you know, connective tissue um, in terms of built infrastructure. And that there's a class component to that, that, you know, the term bridge and tunnel is is often used in a kind of dismissive way. It refers to working class people, especially white ethnics, you know, who tended to live on the periphery of the city. You know, that is the immediate cultural context for these two guys who were born at the same time and came of age in the post-war era, you know, and they were on the periphery because it reflected their their sort of socioeconomic circumstances. Now, in terms of the metropolitan sound thing, you know, one of the things I really learned, I guess, in the process of doing this project is that, you know, I think we all think of greater New York as this sort of uh, communication center of the nation of the world, you know, that it's that it's our, our broadcasting capital, it's where, uh, you know, our kind of intellectual, you know, nucleus is sort of centered. And I, we often think of New York as sort of a clearinghouse for other musical cultures. And the other piece of this that is very historically specific, which is that, you know, Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, you know, come out of a rock and roll tradition and rock and roll's origins are really in the hinterlands. They're, they're really rural, really Southern. And so this music got sort of refracted through the prism of New York. I mean, when, I mean, of course, the, you know, the, the turning point in the history of popular music is Elvis coming from Memphis to RCA in Manhattan. And that's when the, you know, the big bang sort of happens as Springsteen sort of, sort of terms it. But one of the things I found interesting is that New, greater New York also has an indigenous set of musical traditions that are sort of bonafide, you know, local in terms of their emergence and in terms of their, you know, the, the way that they sort of, uh, fertilize and the way that they, you know, develop and that both Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, you know, we, we tend to think of them reasonably, you know, as the heirs of the Beatles, as the heirs of Bob Dylan, as the heirs of Elvis Presley. But they also are byproducts of much more local, much more specific, you know, greater New York musical influences. Which you argue goes back to, you know, the turn of the 20th century, right? What are some of those influences then that they draw upon in their work? Yeah. Well, I do want to I do want to sort of maybe hedge or square the circle here a little bit by saying that, you know, New York is, of course, a melting pot. And, and in a way, there's nothing, you know, pure about, you know, and, and pure New York to anything here. I mean, I think a good example of a paradigmatic figure here is someone like Irving Berlin, you know, a, a white ethnic immigrant Jewish who is just this sponge, you know, in terms of, I mean, he, you know, he is a very, we don't, we don't really think of him as a jazz musician. And in some ways, he's really not. But but you can't really understand a song like Alexander Alexander's Ragtime Band, which was his first big hit circa 1911, without sort of thinking about that. And, you know, Berlin is important because he's a pop singer and he has hit records and he has them decade after decade. And so even though there's no direct, you know, musicological lineage you can necessarily trace from him to Springsteen, I think it's impossible to understand, you know, how these guys imagine their career without understanding where a guy like this is coming from. So like, that's the kind of thing that I mean, or someone like a Frank Sinatra, you know, again, white ethnic, uh, working class, you know, from the periphery Hoboken, you know, he actually is to some degree, a direct musical influence on Joel, not so much on Springsteen, but it's, it's actually Frank Sinatra, not the Beatles, but Frank Sinatra, who bequeaths to us the notion of a, of an LP of a, of making a record where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and, and conceives of a, of a career as an organic thing that evolves over a period of time like that, that, you know, imaginary to use sort of an academic term is, 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 is something that, that is absolutely central to Springsteen's and Joel's understanding of what they want to be when they grow up. And I think that's an important part of the story. I did not know, like there were things in your book, like I've pretty much read just about everything that's sort of been written since your book came out on Springsteen or born in the USA back in the nineties. I think I've read just as a fan, you know, as an intellectual academic, I should say, but as a fan, I've read, you know, if there's a new Springsteen book out, I get it. And I read it. But I learned some new things in your book. Like I, I had missed a miss Springsteen's comment about Sinatra that if he had one, what was it? If he had one song to take then, on a yeah. desert island, or one song that he would, it would be um, the nineteen sixty six Sinatra uh, "Summer Wind," right? And 
One of the things about your book, Jim, is it took me so long to read because I just kept putting it down and then going on YouTube. I must have listened to Summer Wind about three times. I was annoying my wife by singing it. But then, you know, you also had that Billy Joel kind of uh, the Beethoven. Uh, what was that? Sonata that works its way into this time. from Yeah. The- and I looked up that YouTube video as well, where he's playing that Beethoven Sonata and goes into it was my life, I think you know, in a concert. So there were a lot of, a lot of, if you're a Springsteen fan or just a Billy Joel fan too, there's a lot of little tidbits in this book that are really, really interesting, even apart from the larger thesis. Back to the thesis though, let me come at this a little bit of a different way. You say that Joel and Springsteen were quote unquote cosmopolitans in spirit and metropolitans at heart. This is page 114. I'm really interested in that question because I've spent a lot of my time in my career thinking about, so you're on a podcast called The Way of Improvement Leads Home, and most people have no idea what that means, but it it really goes back to my first book where I really wrestled with this concept of rootedness and cosmopolitanism actually in the 18th century through a New Jersey farmer named Philip Vickers Fithian. So I'm really fascinated with this roots and, you know, kind of cosmopolitan tension. And it was one of the things that really attracted me to your book. And and you certainly delivered on this, but talk about this. You know, these artists have this kind of cosmopolitan, you know, national, global, sometimes, you know, Springsteen's writing about Nebraska and Joel's writing about Vienna, you know, and these things. But then at the same time, they're deeply rooted in, in a sense of place. Talk about that tension. Well, you know, I think the first thing that needs to be said is that these are both people who are on the periphery, right, on either side. So Joel is east of the periphery, and Springsteen is sort of southwest of the periphery. And these are defining facts of their lives. It shapes who they are and what they become. But it's also true, especially when you come from the periphery like that, that there's a hunger, that there's a longing to find yourself back in the center. Again, someone like Sinatra is such an important paradigmatic figure in this. this. And so... These are both people who have a vision of what it means to be big time. I mean, it's very, it's very palpable. It's very nearby, and it shapes their sort of ambitions in terms of what they go on to do. Now, this is where things get kind of interesting for me in terms of a comparison because they're they're very similar, but they're also very different. So, in the case of someone like Billy Joel, you know, one of the things that happens pretty quickly in his case is that he, in an important sense, rejects his roots. He wants to get the hell out. And he leaves for Los Angeles as a young man. He spends three years there. And he writes actually fairly dismissively about his home place. You Hicksville, know, Long um, Island, right? Right, yeah. right. And he has, by, by the way, the Hicksville is an Elias Hicks, the, the Quaker, you know. Quaker, so yeah, the yeah, Hicksites. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, he has a song like The Great Suburban Showdown, in which he's very actually condescending about his about his sort of roots. And it's also the case that, you know, Joel is very eclectic and omnivorous music. His first album opens, it, it's got, it's got a, um, you know, bluegrass song. It's got a saloon song. It's got a Ray Charles thing. It does Aaron Copeland. I mean, you know, in, in a way he's, he's at great pains to sort of distance himself from his origins and show his versatility, which of course is considerable. Springsteen, by contrast, is a resolutely local boy and all and his early records are all about, you know, where he's from. And, and he writes with such insouciance and such joy about, you know, his life in the hinterland. And so that's a real uh, marked contrast for them at the outset. And then there's a kind of interesting convergence because literally and figuratively, Billy Joel comes home in the late 70s and begins to reappraise his life and his origins. And you see that in songs like you know, New York State of Mind, of course, he has an album called Turnstiles, which reflects his sort of, you know, return to his, you know, New York home ground. But at the very moment that that's happening, Springsteen's kind of having an existential crisis. And, you know, he's born to run. He wants to get the hell out. Jungle Land has a kind of apocalyptic quality to it. And it's all about escape, you know. And then he, of course, goes on to make Darkness on the Edge of Town with this sort of panoramic Western vision. And so he moves, he moves the other way. And so uh, that's sort of what's striking here is that t- these guys are so alike in certain respects, and yet they really are moving in opposite directions. They never get too far. They both eventually, you know, I think, you know, return to ground. Of course, Springsteen himself lives in California for a while and then once again returns home. So this dialectic you know, that they have between, you know, home and away from, you know, sort of the sticks to the center, you know, is, is one of the great engines of their creativity. Yeah, that's that's so good. That's so good. Now. 
I want to ask you some questions that might be kind of tangential to the central thesis, but they come up over and over again in the book. You know, you talk about Springsteen and Joel as, for lack of a you know better term, you know, sort of historians, right? I mean, immediately right now, someone's thinking about we didn't start the fire, but I mean more than you know, I think you mean more than just that. You know, Springsteen. You know, for those of you who know Springsteen, you know, he talks about in his memoir, you know, people like Howard Zinn and and Henry Steele Commager and these kinds of figures. They're trying to reflect on their role in kind of some kind of American story if you will. Talk a little bit about that. What kind of historical consciousness did these guys have? Was there a kind of historiographical sensibility to their work? And is that somehow even connected to the the answer you just gave to the last question? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that maybe is worth noting here is that these guys were both relatively poorly educated. And, you know, in, insofar as there's any blame to that, neither one of them were really students. You know, Joel didn't actually finish high school. Springsteen did by the skin of his teeth and was a college dropout. Both of them, though, are autodidacts. I mean, both of them actually went on to become fairly serious and systematic readers and, you know, have acquired a, a real, um, you know, sophisticated grasp of the arc of American history generally, I think I think it's fair to say. And it surfaces in both of their work and we, we can talk about the details. But I think the 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 most important thing to say about them as historians is that it is a temperament, I think. It's not a skill set, you know, it's not a training. It is a kind of imagination. And I think from a very early stage in both of their careers, in an inchoate way, they were very interested in, you know, situating themselves as part of something larger than themselves and documenting a record, I mean, literally and figuratively of who they were, where they were, and themselves as representatives of something greater than themselves. I mean, I think that that is a not really fully conscious, but but unmistakable tendency that I think becomes very clear as you look at the larger arc of their careers. Yeah, it seems like every time, I don't know Joel as well as Springsteen, but you, you see anytime Springsteen's giving some kind of a kind of a formal talk at an awards, he's winning an award for something, he's always connecting himself to those who went before, whether it's, you know, the animals or the, you know, Ronnie Spector, you know, something like this. He always seems to have a sense that he is well put, right? Part of something larger. He's kind of sees himself as kind of entering into a story that's much bigger and will go on after him in some ways. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because, again, they both have this sort of historical consciousness, but it sort of manifests itself in different ways. So in Springsteen's case, his historical impulses, I think, as you're suggesting, really begin with a sense of musical history. You know, I mean, he is so, you know, as you know, his pal like Steve Van Zandt, I mean, they, they spent a lot of their time Historians like you and me read a lot of books, but they just listen to records endlessly, sort of obscure records, famous records. When Springsteen was making Born to Run, he was just, you know, listening to music every night. There's this very conscious of borrowing of the Dwayne Eddy riff here and the girl groups there. And I mean, there was this really systematic approach that he took to this. And it's funny because in, in a way, time stopped for Springsteen at, at about 1973. Like, you know, his themes, you know, his interest in, in current events was lifelong. And he, he is certainly about as as, as civic minded and well educated as as anybody on the planet. But in terms of his musical framework, you know, he really looks back. And of course, when Springsteen starts to do new things, when he tries to expand his repertoire, he goes to, you know, Woody Guthrie, and then he goes back to Stephen Foster. And now Burt Bacharach. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's kind of amazing that way in, in terms of his his astounding sense of range and his astounding sense of history. And he uses that, you know, to, he has a song like We Are Alive, where he draws a connection, right, between 19th century and 21st century immigrants and, and labor organizers and so on. So he's able to connect all kinds of dots, but his sensibility is so profoundly historical. Joel, by contrast, is a little bit more, to, in the context of our conversation here, is a little bit more cosmopolitan. I mean, he he's interested in in jazz, and you see that you see that manifesting itself on an album like Fifty Second Street. He will draw on someone like Beethoven. His frame of reference is much wider, and he is more musically adventurous. He's a, he's he's got a formal training. Springsteen does not. I, I think that if you're going to talk about you know chordal structures and harmonies and, and compositions, I mean. Joel has it all over Springsteen, I think. Springsteen is the better lyricist. I'm not necessarily interested in making, you know, invidious comparisons. My real point is that 
Springsteen has a sense of, of history that's very, very vertical in terms of how he understands the past. And Joel's understanding of history is a little bit more horizontal in that he has a, a wider frame of references. You know, he played, he recorded a ragtime song on that second album of his. I mean, he's got some reggae. Only the Good Die Young started out as a reggae song. I think that he has a, um, a more Catholic um, taste as far as some of this stuff goes. I think you mentioned this in the book, too. I was thinking when you're talking about Van Zant and, and Springsteen sitting around talking about music history, you know, there's that great line, you know this well, but there's this you no know, surrender, right? I learned more in a three-minute record than I ever learned at school, right? Let's get into the sort of 1980s because your chapter on Springsteen and Joel, again, you cover the 70s really, really well. I encourage people listening to go, you know, read about, you know, your sort of biographical sketches too, about them coming up in the seventies, but it's really, you know, your chapter on the eighties, mid eighties is kind of stars aligned, right? I think is in the subtitle. Joel releases Innocent Man, the album. I think it's worth noting as you do that The Stranger back in the seventies was a better selling album, but an innocent man, what did Joel have? Five, six, number one hit, top well, 10 hits, or Yeah, he had, he had, I think he had, he, yeah, something like that. I mean, it may yeah, be, very yeah. successful. You know, this is the era of kind of Uptown Girl and, you know, these songs. And then of course, Springsteen explodes with Born in the USA. You know, there's been a lot written about both these albums. I, I'm much more interested in, and I think my listeners might be, in the kind of social and cultural circumstances of the 80s. You know, what was it about the music industry, about the Reagan era, about just the 80s in general, you know, that made these two artists kind of into megastars, you know, and really kind of solidified their legacies as great pop and rock artists? Well, you know, one way to answer that is is just to focus on 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 sort of what we'll call sort of the luck factor. You know, that these were guys who um, had managed to establish themselves at the end of the 1970s in a record industry that you know had a real infrastructure to support established artists, and they were able to sort of uh, tap into that and cross into the new decade. You know, as with, with things like MTV and the advent of the compact disc. And we're able to sort of make that transition. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Of course, there are plenty of people who didn't make that transition. And you, know, you have to have something to work with, you know. Uh, and, and clearly they did because they were talented guys. But but I think there's something more fundamental at work here, which is that in their very different ways, Springsteen and Joel were good vessels for what I'll call the cultural conservatism of the 1980s. That, you know, neither one of them were politically conservative. They both were skeptical, if not hostile, to Reagan and, and, and Reagan's politics. But I think that their music did um, reflect a you know, desire to preserve, conserve, reconfigure sort of you know, American traditions at a time when people were you know, really longing to do that. In the aftermath of the 1970s, you know, you have, of course, things like Watergate, the end of the Vietnam War, the energy crisis, you know, there, there's a real sense of national despair. And, you know, one of the things that Reagan is offering, you know, in the 80s is this, is this you know, sense of optimism and this sense of patriotism, which, of course, is very, very appealing. And again, you know, neither Springsteen or Joel is, is overtly or even, you know, uh, indirectly endorsing any of this. I think that they are that their music does reflect, you know, their desire to, you know, maintain and, you know, sort of revitalize. They're not disco, you know, in terms of, you know, trying in terms of novelty. They're not punk rock. You know, Joel is quite hostile to punk rock. Springsteen is interested in punk rock, but doesn't actually embrace it himself. These are genres. These are people who are restless with the status quo, really trying to reconfigure it. And and neither of these guys is in terms of what they're what they're doing musically. A song like Born in the USA, I mean, there's a kind of narrative out there which makes a lot of sense that, you know, you know, people didn't really understand that song. You know, they they interpreted it as this patriotic anthem, but it really wasn't a patriotic anthem. They didn't understand that the the singer of the song is a as an embittered Vietnam vet and and Reagan committed an obscenity when he sort of invoked it. And that is, I think, an understandable and I think that to some degree legitimate reading of the song, but it's also in a funny kind of way, as a song about resilience and a song about patriotism as a as a form of survival. And so, you know, there is there is a logic there. 
Uh, and I think there is a reason why the Reagan people really did try to wrap themselves in the in the Reagan and in, in, in the Springsteen mantle because they correctly sensed that there was a way in which you know Springsteen was affirming national mythology, even if it wasn't exactly the same way the, the Reagan people were, and even if the Reagan people were cynical or hypocritical in the way that they were practicing politics at that time. I saw your piece, uh, one of your pieces in Time recently on, on the book Time Magazine, Time website magazine whatever i think you know there was this moment in kind of our collective understanding as a country of springsteen where like we all learned that the born in the usa is not patriotic that the tour stop in what was it hamilton or vineland new jersey right you know in, in 84 and so forth but now i think if i'm listening to you correctly now i think we need to nuance that a little bit more you know now the default position is everybody knows it's not about what you're saying now is maybe, maybe not, you know, there is this kind of, you know, working, you know, I think you talk about them at, at one point in the book as both Joel and Trina, sort of weirdly normal people in a kind of time when people are looking for everyday heroes, maybe, as opposed to the, unless you see a tease that out in like an 800 word piece. You know, something. I'll think about that. I mean, just to, to, just to elaborate on what you're alluding to there. I mean, Pop music has always been an arena for iconoclasm, and and young people are often looking for alternatives, you know, as they, as they try to make sense of their world. And so it's not surprising that you know you have someone like a boy George sort of experimenting with with gender presentation, where where you'd have Madonna pushing the boundaries of sexuality. You know, you have Cyndi Lauper brashly reimagining what sort of style means, where you have someone like Prince who is subverting you know, a lot of different, you know, notions of, of, of musical genre, Michael Jackson, of course. And so this is the environment that Springsteen and Joel are in. And they, you know, they are the uh, the token, as it were, uh, normal, quote unquote, people, you know, in this yeah. in this gallery of heroes. Yeah, yeah. That's such an interesting observation and very, very good. Let's talk a little bit more about sort of politic politics, right? You know, I mean, actual engaging in politics as you just said a few minutes ago neither of them through most of their career uh engaged in politics joel still very much is not an overly political figure springsteen probably what since about 2004 or so or maybe earlier i mean he's always had these kind of nuclear anti-nuclear kind of songs and you know he was involved in we are the world and you know these kinds of things but he becomes overtly partisan Right. Was it with the carry? You know, well, yeah, he actually, he actually supports a campaign openly. Tell me a little bit more about why they stayed so quiet politically. And, you know, what are their similarities and differences in this regard? Well, I mean, I think at some level, both of them really were fundamentally not interested in partisan politics and really were living in a fairly insular world that way. I mean, they were so busy trying to build careers and make their way. And, and maybe to some degree, that's a luxury that they had. I mean, it's not entirely true or fair. I mean, both of them had to deal, I mean, Springsteen had to deal with, with being drafted and, and getting out of the draft and so on. So I don't want to overstate, I don't want to overstate the case. But certainly, I mean, someone like Springsteen is kind of interesting because, you know, he really made a very conscious decision to to avoid politics. I mean, he did a fundraiser for George McGovern in 1972 and instantly regretted it. And it became a kind of matter of pol policy for him. You know, when he did the no nukes concerts in 1979, he refused to sign a, you know, a statement against nuclear power. You know, one of the first songs he recorded was for the river. His river album was roulette about apparently a family fleeing right. a nuclear accident. And he decided that he wasn't going to put it on the record because he didn't want to, you know, whatever, get drawn into politics and so on. So he, he was he was pretty resolute about that. Joel was as well. I think one key turning point for Springsteen was Prop 209 in California in 1996, where he really um, came out against anti-immigration, you know, sort of policy. And I think that was really the the the, um, the first time that he had taken a, a public stance on a political issue. And then, as you point out, the Kerry campaign was really the his coming out, as it were. And he wrote an op-ed piece for the Times at the time, and has been a sort of a reliable progressive, what we now call progressive Democrat, ever since. Joel has, you know, um, continued to maintain his distance from politics. He did wear a Star of David after Charlottesville in 2017. I think, you know, he was really, really disturbed and disgusted by that. But that's about as far as I know uh, him taking a taking an overt stance. 
You know, I, I do think that, I, and I want to like some degree texture what I was saying earlier about Born in the USA. Springsteen's patriotism, and I know this is something that you're interested in your own work. You know, was it was very much a left patriotism. He, I think, sees himself as a as an organic inheritor of uh, of a tradition that runs through the you know the populace of the late 19th century and the sort of the New Deal coalition and and so on. So I think he sort of music, sort of, Woody Guthrie, that right, kind of, right, yeah. yeah. But, but the last thing I'll say, and I think this is very and this is very important to both of these guys, and it really is a uh, it really is a statement about their musical politics, and it and I and I think it really is musical, but I also think it's really political too, which is that they are both very deeply committed to integration as a principle of their music and of their way of life you know and and in this regard i think they are pr- profoundly shaped by the aftermath of the civil rights movement and it really is um very important to their sense of who they are and the music that they make and the and the you know the borrowings that they that they tap and the way that they reconfigure and i hesitate to uh be too presumptuous about this but i think that you know Springsteen, I think, you know, considers himself a progressive Democrat, and, and I'm sure many people do, and, and in good faith and all that. And But I also think that this integrationist sensibility that he has is a little different than tenor of contemporary American politics, especially American racial politics, which I think is, you know, regards integration as an ideal much more skeptically than, than Springsteen has done, and that Joel certainly has done as well in both of their careers. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking, when was the Diallo, the 41 Shots, his song? That was... That was in 2000. Yeah. 2000. Yeah, that, that was, yeah, that was an important I, mean, I remember, one. I remember, you know, I was, you know, what, in my uh, 30s, you know, at that time. And I remember sort of going home to my father in New Jersey and playing working class kind of, you know, like a Reagan Democrat type, going home and playing that song for him and just him being... I can't believe you listen to this Springsteen. He sold out this conservative kind of reaction to that, especially among the police department. I mean, you know, that too, I think, is part of this political evolution. Yeah, well, yeah, and you know, I think that's another interesting example that you're citing there because, you know, that reaction that your father has is totally understandable. And yeah. I do not want to in any way, you know, diminish the statement that that Springsteen was making and 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 the way in yeah. which it really represented a kind of a, a departure from him in his career. But, but at yeah. the same time, I, I want to note that, you know, this is a song that's got a lyric that, you know, is from the pol- policeman's point of view, you know, and, you know, Diallo is a black man. He's also an immigrant, you know, I mean, there is a way in which Springsteen is sort of keeping the faith, you know, with, a, a, and trying to connect that story to a much bigger, older story. So, there is a way in which I don't want to call it conservative, but I, I, but I do want to say that it, it sort of um, is a kind of statement of heritage as much as it is a, you know, a, a, a kind of iconoclastic, you know, break with tradition. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. It's just a quick follow up. I just watched Miss Americana, the what was it, Netflix, the Taylor Swift documentary on the urging of my two 20 year old daughters. I have two, you know, who are Swifties. And, you know, there's this classic moment where I, I can't remember Taylor Swift's on the couch with her handlers. I think her parents or mother, father are there. And, you know, she's debating whether or not she's going to speak out against Trump. And there's this whole discussion of this could split your audience in half. You know, they're all of these market considerations. You know, they're trying to get her to say, you know, don't go political. You know, why would you do this? It's such a bad, bad move. Maybe with Springsteen, since he was the more political of the two here, do you think it has anything to do with, you know, he's already established he is Bruce Springsteen by this point. There's not that risk of, you know, dividing his audience. People like my dad, who's never was a big Springsteen fan, but there's people like him, right? You know, who have said, like Chris Christie, for example, right? I wish they would just stay out of politics and just play music, right? Was there any, and I know you don't talk about this in the book, but do you think that might have motivated Springsteen and Joel even to stay out of politics? It's a totally a market consideration, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think these guys are, you know, very aware of the challenges they face, which are considerable. They're aware, not even necessarily that they're afraid of of insulting people, but uh, which they think to some degree they were. They knew that they were answerable too you know, record company executives and and radio station programmers, anything that would compromise them in the eyes of such people, 
you know, was something that they that they wanted to, wanted to avoid. And I think they both felt like you know they had enough challenges on their plate and and doing anything to gratuitously alienate people that they didn't want to alienate. And again, this this is where Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen are not the Grateful Dead. You know, they're not Bob Dylan, right? Uh, which which to be fair, I mean, you know. Dylan, Dylan's brand was iconoclasm, you know, I mean, that's who he was, that's what he did, you know, so, and in the 60s, I think there may have been a little bit more room for that kind of thing. By the same token, I think that Joel and Springsteen had, as you're, as you're implying, or as you actually suggested, you know, have a little bit more room than Taylor Swift does at, at that particular moment, you know, Swift herself has gotten a little bit more, by the way, I am a huge Taylor Swift fan, and I urge your, urge your listeners to, you know, to give her a serious listen if they hadn't, haven't already. So I think that these are, these are things that you have to think about. And in fact, when you look at the history of American popular music, you know, political statements are much more the exception than the rule, you know, and and someone like Frank Sinatra, you know, was one of the first people to actually be a partisan Democrat, which was not necessarily a, a smart move for him, you know, and, you know, was not directly implicated in his, um, his vertiginous decline in the 40s, but it certainly didn't help matters any. My Italian grandfather who was a teamster his entire life, drove brewery uh, delivery trucks for for Newark breweries. He used to have in his little kind of smoking room in the basement a picture of Sinatra. I mean, so stereotypical. He had a picture of FDR, Sinatra, and the Pope yeah. <laughs> in his group. I mean, you can't get more stereotypical than yeah. that. You know, Robert Coles, the great the great psych- Harvard psychologist Robert Coles, did a book on Springsteen about 20 years ago in which he did interviews with Springsteen fans. And what I think is so interesting in the, in the context of your question is that when you get these people talking, they like they argue with Springsteen, like they get they get mad at him or they don't understand why he does this. And and to me, that's so profound because this is one of the ways in which popular culture really becomes an important way for people to make sense in their lives. And we tend to think about popular culture as sort of affirming or confirming us, which it which it usually does. But it can also be this very powerful and necessary and profound, you know, crossroads for us to try to make sense of the world that we're living in. Yeah, yeah. Our time's just about up. I got one more quick question for you. But get the book. I mean, there's actually a piece today. I want to give it a little plug. There's a piece today in the New York Times in which Jim Cullen is interviewed about the book. So check that out too. So as I got to the end of the book, I mentioned two daughters, one's 23, one's 26. Total Swifties, total Taylor Swift. I mean, you know, and it's it's just getting worse with, not worse, but it's, it's with the whole Kelsey, Travis Kelsey thing. It's just insane. You know, that I get 10 texts a day with this or that, you know, thing. I told them about this interview I was doing and I took photographs of your last two, the last two pages of the book, the conclusion, which is about Taylor Swift. And, and they loved it, by the way. But why, why end a book about Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel? with two and a half pages on Taylor Swift? Well, I mean, I think that she is their heir. I mean, uh, you know, whether you're talking about her commercial impact or her or her artistic trajectory in terms of building a career, she represents a rare example of the kind of, um, you know, broad-based audience that both of these guys were able to achieve, not necessarily for their intrinsic merit, but because of the media landscape in which they inhabited you know, this gets to, I think, one of the things that that was important to me about doing this book and doing it this time. These are generational stories, and we we are products of our own time, right? You know, you if I if I say the name Bing Crosby to you, you know who Bing Crosby was. You can talk about your father or your grandfather, but Bing Crosby is you know a historical artifact now, and and his I've actually visited his home at the campus of Gonzaga University. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, amazing that you know he's yeah he's he's talking about the hinterlands. I mean, that's a does that's as far as it gets, you know. So I wanted to sort of capture these two guys while they're still alive, and you know, literally and figuratively. And I also wanted to suggest, I mean, the amazing thing about Taylor Swift is that she's no spring chicken, you know, she's going to turn 34 years old next month. I mean, she's been a star for half her life. And, uh, you know, someday she's going to be, you know, a golden oldie, you know, and and, uh, this is what happens to the best of us. And so I wanted to sort of, you know, situate Springsteen and Joel in a stream of time, you know, in terms of their their forebears, but also their their heirs. And Springsteen has had very positive things to say about Taylor Swift. Has Joel said anything? Publicly? He has. Yeah, no, he he has. And and uh, in fact, he performed with her. Yeah, they they shared a stage sometime in the last twelve months, where she yeah. cited Billy Joel in, in the lyrics of one of her songs. So, well, when my daughters were getting into Billy, was that your daughter 
That was my son's girlfriend. So Your son's she, girlfriend. Okay. Yeah, so she was the vessel, my vessel to the outside world. Yeah. Got you. Got you. My daughter sent me, uh, I was kind of, you know, not into Swift as much as they were. And then I don't know, several years ago, Springsteen was on, I think Jimmy Fallon or something, or one of those shows and mentioned how much he liked Taylor Swift. And, uh, you know, my, my daughter's sent that to me immediately to try to win me over. <laughs> you know, look, Springsteen likes him. We have talked today with Jim Cohen. He is the author of Bridge and Tunnel Boys, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and the Metropolitan Sound of the American University, published in 2023 with Rutgers University Press. Thanks so much for taking the time on a Friday afternoon, end of the school day, I'm imagining. I appreciate it. Oh, real pleasure. Real pleasure, John. Thank you so much. I told you I was excited about this episode and it did not disappoint. I know a lot of you aren't Springsteen fans. That's fair. I know some of you just tolerate these Springsteen episodes, but for me, this was a highlight. I, as I said, I've been reading Jim Cullen for probably about 20 years. He just told me off the air, so to speak, that he has a third edition of Born in the USA, his book on Springsteen, coming out in March incredibly prolific for a high school teacher. That's why I wanted to ask him that question. But if you are a Billy Joel fan, if you are a Bruce Springsteen fan, if you are a popular music fan, get this book, Bridge and Tunnel Boys by Jim Cullen, one of our great writers of popular culture, one of my favorite writers. Rutgers University Press, 2023. Uh, so again, thanks for listening. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. We miss you, Drew. Our producer is Casey Lehman out of Nashville, and I am John Fia, your host. Mm-hmm.